Wesley Kate with Eco Energy, Director of Natural Gas and Infrastructure. Eco Energy. Wow, that's a name that has got to be uh, um, just lighten up the Google searches and everything else, man. Uh, what, what a great name in today's climate. So first, before we get into uh, pipelines as a critical infrastructure, which I think is going to be a fascinating topic, uh, t- talk to me a little bit about, you know, Eco Energy, what you guys do. You know, go ahead and give yourself a plug. Yeah, so Eco Energy has actually been around for 25 years, and we were founded in the ethanol space as a, as a midstream marketing company. Uh, started out in California, but had migrated to Tennessee in the early 2000s. Um, and to date, we're one of the largest midstream um, ethanol marketing companies in the world. We're actually owned by a Brazilian company called Copra Sucrum. Um, and together, we, we represent about $4.3 billion, or Eco represents about $4.3 billion in revenue in the U.S. And we've got about 17 alliance partners. Um, about 1.2 billion gallons of ethanol, and to date we've developed about nine ethanol terminals and have two under construction in Phoenix, Arizona, and one in Stockton, California. Um, So we've been very focused on the ethanol space, but about, I guess, five years ago, we started our natural gas uh, marketing division uh, and have grown that extremely fast. We're now moving over BCF and a half a day, uh, and Platts ranked us in the top 20 natural gas marketing firms in the U.S. uh, earlier this year. So we were very proud of that. Um, Additionally, just like in our ethanol side, we started uh, investing in in natural gas infrastructure and closed on our first acquisition last month. Um, We we purchased 600 miles of pipeline, a cryogenic processing plant, and a liquids terminal for Y-grade propane butane. Um, So we're very excited about that entry into the asset portfolio for the natural gas space. Um, it's complementary to how our, our entire business has evolved. That's really interesting. Uh, ethanol and natural gas. Um, ta- is that u- unusual for, for a combination of that to be, you know, how somebody makes their, their revenue? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of Gary Theraldson, who uh, is in North Dakota. He's one of the, I, I would imagine, you know, you, you, you've at least heard the name before. He's a he's an ethanol producer. And so I'm somewhat familiar with the politics and ethanol and the industry. And, you know, it is pretty well separate than the oil and gas industry in terms of geography a lot of times. So um, to, just is that a normal combination for for those two industries to be together under one business, I guess? <laughs> No, it, it, it's most likely not. Um, the, the evolution there is that our ethanol plants came back and said, hey, gosh, one of our largest costs here is our cost of natural gas. And so Eco is really focused around customer service. That's that's priority number one for us. And so really because of, of that need for our clients, for our alliance partners, um, we created a, a gas marketing division really with the sole focus of serving them uh, but when our initial team got started, um, we're all fairly aggressive, and, and we had a growth plan that we wanted to exceed just our alliance partners. Um, and that's really how our, our gas division began, is first to serve the plants, but then second, uh, we took off on a tear. And, and now we're are moving well beyond what our alliance partners could ever consume. Well, I think that's a pretty good testament to your company. And, and the reason I say that is before the interview you and I were kind of rapping a little bit and I mentioned to you how you know when I first got into this I I was going to 
investigate against oil and gas and it switched pretty quick because of where my passions lie and I'm still doing the same exact thing but it's just I, I'm, I'm actually a little bit more passionate towards the capitalism side of things and just the community building that the oil and gas industry does and, and just the real enabling of opportunity I, I absolutely love and so I'm doing more stories on that and, and following that passion you seem you guys seem to like okay you, you wanted to have good customer service you wanted to make money you wanted to figure out places to find in the market and so it just seems like you did a lot like what I did just got followed your passion <laughs> and that, that, absolutely actually on one of our walls in our office literally the word is pa- passion is is written um, so that's that's something we are acutely focused on um, in in the end we don't exist if our if our customers aren't there. So we're, we're always talking and communicating with our customers on what their needs are, what their wants are, uh, and trying to look, you know, three, five, ten years ahead as to where the market's going to be and how we can help position them and ourselves to take advantage of those opportunities. So let's talk about where the market's going to be. The one, the one place that we know for sure, I would say, is natural gas. I mean, there's a lot of speculation about a lot of different industries. But the one that seems to be really the strongest is natural gas. And the reason I say that is if you take away all the, you know, the, the discourse out there in the mainstream media and the public and that sort of thing, you've got pipelines being built and you've got uh, processing plants being built and, and feedstock plants built, being built down at Lake Charles and Houston and up in the Bakken and that sort of thing. Powder River just you know, is a a nice little secret that's going to be around for 20, 30 years with natural gas. So when I look at natural gas, I look at that as a pretty solid, safe, clean energy source that the the world and the country is going to use for a long time. I got introduced to you by this this passion that you've got about pipelines are a, a critical infrastructure. So talk to me a little bit about that. And you can, you know, disagree or agree with, with kind of my context that I, I believe natural gas is going to be or what we do with it's a different story. And this is why I like your conversation that we need pipelines. Yeah, that, absolutely. Um, you know, when, when we look at, uh, at infrastructure, I think there's three components to that discussion. You, ha- you actually have su- supply, which is really historically where we've always been focused from a conversational standpoint. It's always, well, natural gas supply. You know, everyone wants to talk about the growth, and, and that is exciting, and I don't want to take away from that. But I, I-, I think it's important that we sh- start to shift that narrative over to the demand side, because that's really where we can start to label this as, as a critical infrastructure component. Um, you know, when-, when we look at where pipelines are going and what they're providing for us as a society um, that's really where I, I believe Jason we can can shift this into that critical infrastructure category because natural gas in 2018 we were 35% of your overall power demand um, that that's massive coal, coal was at 27% and nuclear was at 19 so I, I think that you know when we look at critical infrastructure and, and power electricity that all falls under critical infrastructure. So if our pipelines are providing 35% of our overall power portfolio, I think that's critical. And then when we look at the 2018 industrial uh, natural gas consumption or industrial consumption, 28% of that was natural gas. So when you look at your your GMs, your Toyotas, your Pfizer's, your AK Steel's, your Nucor's um, on your industrial complex, 28% is natural gas. 
So, you know, I, what I actually, prior to this conversation, I went in and just kind of for, for simplicity's sake, looked at what the true designation is of, of critical infrastructure. And they say that it's essential assets that are considered vital to the continued smooth functioning of the society as an integrated entity. So smooth functioning, that means consistent power. Society is having all of the benefits that, that we need from the, from the manufacturing plants, job security. Um, and so I, I think when we talk about infrastructure, again, I really I try to shift the narrative away from the supply side and really focus on the demand side, um, because that's that's what critical infrastructure is for me. What were those three components to natural gas? Do, do what, sir? Well, what was that three components of natural gas you said? You see, you see, and one was supply, and imagine this was it supply and demand, or and demand was number two, or? Um, yeah, it's supply and infrastructure, and then demand, because you you have to have all three. I mean, infrastructure is what gets gets you to the demand, but I think those are the three categories, and and everybody's always focused on on the supply side, um, and and really, you know that. Last week, I gave a, a talk for the Southern States Energy Board about infrastructure, um, because in, in the SSEB territory, we have 82 proposed projects in front of FERC, representing about 8,000 miles of, of pipeline. Um, and I, I put up a, a fascinating chart in there that showed your historical pipelines with uh, TGP and Columbia Gulf and TETCO. Uh, and then I laid down on top of that all of your large-scale industrials and they all follow these pipelines so economic prosperity follows pipelines and that's really what i was trying to to show all of the sseb members is that we should be really trying to uh encourage uh, and foster new pipelines to come into come into these new states because that's how they're going to generate more tax revenue that's how they're going to have job security um, that's how they're going to lower their power bills uh, you know, all, all of these things come from pipelines, and again, it's on the demand side of the equation, but it has much broader effects than the supply. I mean, supply is what generates it, but I think the demand side is a narrative that I'm really focusing on because those, you know, a job at GM is something that your normal person can relate to. Um, you know, a, a, a job at, at, at a manufacturing facility is something they can relate to, and those opportunities really come about when you have natural gas infrastructure. You bring up a good point too, which is uh, pipelines are critical. And the word critical makes me go to, to roads, bridges, even you know water pipes. So I, I believe some communities do uh, list water pipes as a necessity, just like roads, etc. So I mean, to, to evolve or take a look at a pipeline for natural gas, if that's where the majority of energy is going. Basically, where I'm getting to is, is, is pipelines as energy, I would think, would be critical. Um, power lines, I believe, are at least quasi-fall under some sort of critical infrastructure. I know they're shared, publicly shared as far as the cost. Uh, cell phone towers in some cases are too. So uh, t talk to me a little bit about where we're at with that. I guess I'm not even sure. Are, are pipelines considered, you know, to, to be like a, as, as critical as, as roads and, and that sort of thing? Um, I don't think that they, and, I, and I'll, I'll uh, preface this by saying I am not a, a specialist in this category whatsoever, 
Um, but to my knowledge, they are not. I mean, um, it, I, it, you see where you second-guessed yourself after I kind of laid it out like that, where it seems like it should be as critical as those other things, but at the same time, like, I don't remember reading or hearing of this. C- correct. And so I, I believe the, um, the electricity has their own uh, designation for critical infrastructure, but I believe they put together a... Uh, a subsector coordinating council. Actually, I, I have it in my notes that they, they did put together a council that works together with industry, but it's not really considered um, like a, a true structural uh, critical infrastructure component. They just have a council put together. Um, and there was a, a good report put out by uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security that I had read last week on this. Um, and, I, and I'm happy to send that over to you, Jason. But but it, it does seem like a lot of the focus, and even last week at the SSEB meeting, um, a lot of the focus was on uh, electric power generation and, uh, and, and, and your large-scale high-voltage electric lines. Um, and that, that was kind of an eye-opening thing for myself um, because, again, when I look at your largest source of power right now is from natural gas, why are we not placing the same amount of priority and emphasis and dialogue around our infrastructure for natural gas. Um, it, it, it doesn't seem like that that really gets the credit where credit is due. Well, you can really even frame the argument from powering homes to feeding people. I mean, just from the feedstock that, you know, all the different things that come off of that in the world of agriculture, or just even putting the diesel into the truck. So I guess that's not natural gas. But you get my point is that natural gas is is really not only uh, powering a lot of homes, but it's doing a lot of other things as well that are, are pretty critical to our to our day-to-day lives. I mean, you could even go down to the plastic safety seals on syringes. Is that critical I, for, our, I, for our lives? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I, and I, again, I think that's where shifting the narrative from a supply to a demand-based conversation, because when we look at all the, all the benefits of the byproducts that come out of natural gas, uh, in, in, in the, in the, from the ethylene, you know, I mean, it, it's in our clothing, it's in the fabrics in our, in our vehicles, it's in your syringes. Um, so there's, there's so much benefit that comes out of this that I know, and, and I'm as guilty as the next person in the industry for really not focusing on those benefits and really focusing on that upstream conversation because it has been exciting. Uh, but, but now I, I do realize the, the need to shift that narrative over to a demand based uh, in order to facilitate a, a critical infrastructure conversation. Um, you know, with, with the, the next area on this, Jason, is really the age of our pipelines um, for, for all of our historical primary trunk lines. These are older pipes. You know, they were built in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, and, and I think having that designation of critical infrastructure is important as we as we have some di- low some disruptions in our infrastructure in the last 12, 24 months, we're seeing aging pipeline face some hurdles. Um, and, and, and I think it's important for our industry uh, to, to really categorize ourselves where we stand in the overall value portfolio of our society. Um, and, and natural gas infrastructure is critical. You mentioned demand, and the first thing that popped into my mind was the story we've been covering for two years 
here on the crude life, which is the the Mexican market, Mexico. They're they're just salivating, waiting for our natural gas. Every every expert that I hear from that's involved in the natural gas industry. Um, where are you seeing demand from on, on that demand side of things? Um, is, the, is the Mexican market still waiting for our natural gas? Is there other places that want our natural gas? Absolutely. So I think to date right now, we're exporting about five BCF a day uh, to Mexico. And, and um, I believe we're doing six BCF a day in LNG. Um, so as, as infrastructure markets continue to get built out, uh, we expect that number to continue to rise. I mean, it, it's fascinating. I never thought in my career I would see, and I'm, I'm thinking of 10 years ago, but to see LNG at 6B a day and Mexico at 5B a day. I mean, that's a fascinating number. Um, but, but natural gas is becoming an international commodity now. Um, we have enough of a supply that, that we can internationalize this and, and, and really spread our, our nation's wealth uh, outside of our, our borders from an LNG perspective to export into Mexico, export into Canada. Um, and and we, we do expect those numbers to continue to rise. How about the cost of shipping that molecule across the ocean? I, about three years ago, four years ago, I remember Lee Tillman, CEO of Marathon, was on our program. And he said that to ship a molecule all the way to Southeast Asia or to South America is, is, is not economical right now. It's, it's very difficult, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the economics of, of this. I mean, is, is this why the, the pipelines are so critical is so that we can get the economics down? Um, talk to me a little bit about the economics and where, where you see things need to be. Yeah, so it, as part of my discussion last week at SSEB, um, location is, is one of my biggest priorities when I'm talking to uh, states' economic development cabinets. Where you locate an industrial um, can have massive long-term implications for their commodity cost structure. Um, and, and, I, and I gave the, the, the honest uh, explanation of putting up a map and saying, okay, if you locate here, um, you will have an $8 million savings, whereas if you locate 80 miles southeast, it will cost your manufacturing facility $8 million more. And so location is everything about infrastructure. And a lot of that was because I'm looking at a Columbia Gulf value versus a Transco Zone 5 South value. So Transco is one of our more expensive pipes in the Northeast. For us as a marketing team, we love doing business on Transco. Um, in, in the winter months, that pipeline has a significant value. Um, so location is everything, but with the build out of infrastructure, you can lower your basis price, lower that, that demand price because you have more supply entering the markets. You have more infrastructure entering the markets. And, and part of that right now, part of that conversation when I talk about Transco are two big pipeline projects, the Mountain Valley, Mountain Valley Pipeline and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. Both of those are taking gas out of West Virginia and bringing it into the Virginia markets and the North Carolina markets, and it will come into South Carolina as well. That gas will make their way into South Carolina. And historically, those markets have been very lucrative, uh, high price uh, markets. And, and so they're going to reap massive rewards from these two infrastructure projects coming into their area. 
Um, I want to say both of those projects were around 900 miles in total uh, between the two um, and, and represents over $12 billion of investment uh, to bring that, that molecule from the Northeast into Virginia and North Carolina. How about when it comes to the job side of things, so many people, especially politicians, will be very quick to talk about the number of jobs it creates. Now, I look at pipelines as there's, there's multiple creations here. Number one, you've got, uh, you've got the construction workers and you've got the manufacturers that are building the pipeline. So you got that side of things, the front end, if you will, the, the actual on there. But afterwards, you have the pipelines. But what, what level of innovation is going into this? You know, America's got two-thirds of the world's attorneys. We're definitely a knowledge-based society. We're producing more thinkers than we are workers, as far as blue-collar, more white-collar than blue-collar. Pipelines, you've got so many things that you need for monitoring these days from the smart pigs that go into the, the, the pipelines to now they've got, you know, smart rubbers that can conceal pipelines in for certain things at all. But the, my point is, is that when the, the innovation comes in, you have more software developers and you got more of those thinkers, if you will, that are needed as opposed to the traditional you know, blue collar workers. Do, do you understand what I'm talking about on that slice of the jobs, jo- job push about the importance for pipelines? At, at, absolutely. And I, and I, I think um, there is a, a shift right now in opportunity in the marketplace from a technology side, Jason, to address, help address uh, our aging infrastructure. And, and to innovate to say, okay, well, how do we start to sleeve the pipe? How do we start to have inline repairs on the pipelines? Um, and, and I know of several companies right now that are actively working on long-term solutions for these long-haul interstate pipelines um, and, and creating monitoring system, more active monitoring systems, so that we're, we're more acutely aware on a, on, a, on a micro basis versus a macro basis. Um, so I, I do think these pipelines create those kind of opportunities. Um, and, and, you know, as you said, I mean, they, they foster innovation. I mean, they, they bring technology into other areas. Um, so it, it's exciting to see. Um, obviously, I'm fairly passionate about it. <laughs> you mentioned the aging infrastructure a few times. Um, I see that as a potential problem for a variety of reasons. Um, the sheer fact that anytime you've got critical infrastructure aging, whether it's a road, bridge, or a pipeline, you're going to have uh, you know some sort of bottleneck or some sort of disruption of getting the service, whether it be roads or energy to the place. But I see the, the environmental slice of this being a real problem to where if those pipelines are not addressed and things that are built 100 years ago i mean i'm thinking you know minneapolis did that bridge collapse where the school bus was on it for crying out loud i mean so to to have discussions about bridges collapsing and roads breaking and pipelines breaking the energy industry is facing an, an environmental pr battle like they've never had before to me not addressing the pipelines is a big blow in not being proactive in addressing some of these environmental uh, battles that are before us. Like, like we've talked on this program before, you got two presidential, three, four presidential candidates now trying to ban oil and gas as an industry. 
your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, no, I, I definitely think that's a significant headwind for us as an industry. Um, I don't think it's something we have faced up until the last several years um, with with the evolution of uh, completion technology uh, and with the, our supply um, absolutely running like it has in the Northeast, our pipes were historically a south-north type of system. And it wasn't until the last six years that we, you know, started making pipes bi-directional. Um, you know, when I, when I looked at the TETCO system, they almost doubled in volumetric throughput between 2014 and 2018. Uh, and that, that's, a, that's a massive number to think about that. But TETCO was built in 1942. So when, when we start uh, pushing our infrastructure like this, uh, it has been a, a rapid success story. But I also think it's important for the industry to take a step back and, and start to say, okay, well, we do have aging infrastructure. How do we self-regulate? Because that's the, that is the best thing we can do. Uh, I, I doubt anyone in the industry says that, that we need to have true restrictive regulations put on us by uh, uh, an individual or politician that might not know the industry as well as we do. Um, and again, back to the innovation uh, discussion that I, I mentioned earlier, I, I think that that is coming about right now. Um, I know of several companies that are trying to solve this issue um, to, to in order to help facilitate uh, long-term continuity on these pipelines so that we don't have to derate the pipelines. We don't have to re start replacing infrastructure uh, because the cost component on that would be astronomical. Um, if, if you actually went in and started trying to replace uh, a lot of this aging pipeline. Well, there's a lot of cost to that, without a doubt. And But at the same time, uh, if a lot of this aging pipeline isn't isn't corrected, it's it's going to cause problems. And they need the thing about the the energy industry that I found was that they they do a pretty good job of construction and reclamation and and taking care of the land that sort of thing. I mean, they're they work with archaeologists for crying out loud. I don't know a lot of people that do that. I've never I've never known one homeowner to call an archaeologist to come have them survey their land before they build a home. These guys. Before they drive out to West Texas, they got to have an archaeological team survey the roads before they drive, it seems like. I mean, I'm joking a little bit, but they're, they're regulated pretty well is what I'm saying. And at the same time, they're pretty proactive, too, because, again, what I've found about the energy industry is that they're pretty in tune with the local community. So if you do something that is not going to positively impact the local community, they're going to hear about it. Those people go to Absolutely. church together. They they go to ball games together. They you know they, yeah they're at the same cafes, uh, so it's in their best interest to do that. Anyway, uh, the 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 aging infrastructure that's that's something we really haven't talked about on this program. Uh, how well known is this aging side of things? I hear the roads and the bridges and and that sort of thing. I hear that all the time. That in fact, I just got a release last week about the number. Uh, it's something like 80% of the bridges in America are past 50 years old and they need updating or something like that. So how well is this known to the politicians and the local governments and that sort of thing, the, the issue of the aging pipelines? I don't know if it's that well known, Jason, because it really hasn't been an issue to date. You know, I mean, we've, we've had um, a, a few supply disruptions 
but I, I don't think there's been that much of an, uh, an awareness uh, because all of your gas has been delivered on time. You know, we've not had any power, significant power disruptions. We've not had any uh, significant supply disruptions, um, except for, for, you know, localized instances or around an impact area. Um, so I, I don't know if, if the actual age of the pipeline is, is truly known, or it, even from an industry standpoint. Um, you know, I don't know if everyone really realizes the pipelines that, that we're doubling uh, throughput on are 80 years old. Um, or, or in some cases, 60 years old or older than 80 years old. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure if um, people outside of the actual ownership really are that aware of, of the implications um, or maybe some of the constraints that we're putting on some of this aging infrastructure. And, you know, and that honestly, that was one of the reasons uh, at SSEB I was emphasizing um, the 82 projects in front of FERC for the 8,000 miles of pipeline, um, you know, because that will help relieve some of the some of the constraints on these older pipelines. If we if we allow uh, allow companies to invest and allow states to promote pipelines, um, then that should absolutely start to take some of the pressure off our existing infrastructure, and it help it helps build redundancy in. I mean, redundancy is absolutely everything for industrials and for power. Uh, it, it creates safety. It creates, uh, you know, an opportunity for if there is a disruption that we can still get supply. We can still ensure that that your grandmother has heat to her home um, and that that with aging infrastructure, we absolutely need to be promoting, emphasizing and requiring uh, invest continued investments in pipelines. SSEB, that's the Southern States Energy Board? Correct. Yes, sir. And then I, I saw on your LinkedIn page that uh, you recently spoke at COGA, K-O-G-A. Is that the Kentucky Oil and Gas Association? Uh, yes, sir. So what kind of reaction are you getting? You know, you're an ethanol guy, but you also have natural gas. So I imagine you get the little, little bit of the squinty eye when they look at you for, for the immediate second, just to <laughs> process that unique combination. But, but when you start talking about the pipeline infrastructure and the criticalness, you know, you talk to operators all the time. You're talking to producers upstream, downstream, salmon stream, for crying out loud. So, I mean, you're even talking in the ethanol stream here. So when, when you talk to these people, what's their reaction? What are you hearing from them? You don't have to give me names or anything, but just kind of, you know, pass along the vibe and some of the anecdotal things. Um, from, from what I have gathered from the last month or so, a uh, month and a half that I've, I've kind of, uh, been having more increased dialogue. There's just not a market awareness, um, about the age of the infrastructure. Um, there's not a mark. Truthfully, there's not an awareness of how, how much pipeline is proposed either. There's not a market awareness of, of the implications of, of, locations and commodity savings that that was one of the the biggest takeaways um that i had from from people coming up and talking to me after my my discussion at sseb um is is they did not realize that there's such a disparity in valuation and pricing um say between virginia and north carolina versus if you're in a kentucky or in a west virginia um they they had no clue that 
they were at such a, such a disadvantage um, versus those states that have large-scale infrastructure, have uh, access to the supply of Marcellus uh, and, and down to the Gulf Coast for, from a supply standpoint. So, you know, my, my overall um, takeaway there, Jason, is we've just not done a, not done a great job of, of communicating where we are as an industry uh, and giving – I gave them very specific values – so I, I actually gave them values for what a Columbia Gulf molecule looks like, what a Tennessee gas pipeline molecule looks like versus a Transco versus an East Tennessee and put that on a map um, and, and really kind of gave them micro data so that they can see what the specific effects in a hundred mile radius. Um, and, and that really seemed to, to impact them. Um, but from an aging pipeline perspective, not a lot of awareness at all. So how are you going to make people aware? Because you, you know that this is, a, this is a, a real problem. I know that this is a real problem. And it could be a very expensive problem if it's done in a reactive way. This needs to be a proactive approach to this problem. And listen, politicians... I, I've, I'm, I've done government affairs for 25 years, and God bless them. They have a place in this planet, but they're very reactive. They're, they're just they're reactive at, at, in the end. Um, the energy industry has been very proactive in a lot of different sides. So I do see where if they get wind of this and they understand how much it's going to cost them on the reactive side, that they can be proactive. So how, how is it we can get people to start thinking proactively about this? Because this is a serious problem. Is that, is that question phrased okay? okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, and, I, and I do think all of your majors right now are being extremely proactive. Um, you know, they're, they're taking a look at their systems and, and exploring ways that they can upgrade, replace, repair, um, and, and ensure that they continue to, to be able to uh, pick up the natural gas and deliver the natural gas, because that's how they create revenue. Um, you know, if, if they can't uh, perform one of those functions, they don't get to have, they don't get to create revenue for themselves. So all of those pipeline industries are, are really taking uh, a, a self-reflective look right now, uh, and they're they're trying to figure out how to fix this. It's you know I'm not an engineer. Um, I, I can't tell you a specific way, type, or technology um, that uh, that that is going to be applied here. But I, I do feel strongly that all of your majors are are being extremely proactive and and trying to understand you know what pipelines do they do they need to focus on? What assets do they need to potentially divest. Um, I, I do think right now in this environment, uh, a lot of your major uh, midstream producers or, or midstream companies are probably looking at assets that, you know, are no longer core or might have enough age on them that, that they're going to look at divesting those. Um, and, and then what are core to them and how do they upgrade and keep those in compliance uh, for, for long terms for 10 years from now? You know, that I, I guarantee a lot of them are looking at what would the regulatory landscape in 10 years be and how do we go ahead and proactively prepare ourselves to be in compliance for that. I'll tell you a story about one of the reasons why you need to have critical infrastructure. Uh, are you familiar with the California wildfires that happened last year? 
am, yes, sir. I, now, I don't know where it ranks in terms of history because it seems like everything is historic and the biggest one of all time. And, and in my lifetime, California has wildfires probably every couple of years. And so I, you know, I, I don't know how to rank them, but I do know that I did see quite a bit that last year's was one of the worst on record, if not the worst. And did you see how that started, by the way? Uh, I didn't, no, sir. So when they when they peeled back the onion and they figured out the different layers of how this went, this it had to go with infrastructure. So because of the the stress on the grid, and it had to do with um, their shift over to uh, you know renewables and that sort of thing, um, that during the day. When the sun is out and the wind is going and this and that, there's there's too much energy. And so it's a little bit too much strain on the grid. And so they've got to figure out ways to, to deal with that. And then at night, when there's none of that stuff, the, the other side of the, I guess the fossil fuel side is working overdrive in order to, natural gas especially, to, to keep up with it. Well, during the course of this, trying to figure out this chemistry set, if you will, the company, and I can't remember the name of the company. I think it's P something or another. It's it's the big energy company out there that you know they've got pretty much a monopoly. So whatever the one the energy company is out there, they were going through I believe a restructuring through bankruptcy at the time because they just couldn't get the regulation chemistry set done with the economics right. So as they moved ahead on that, one of the things that lagged was the tree trimming. They cut that out during their restructuring. So the trees were not trimmed properly. The power lines started sagging because that went away too is the amount of maintenance that was being done on these power lines. Well, the trees then started touching the power lines. They started on fire and that's what caused the California wildfire last year, according to multiple official reports that I've read. So that right there is an example of the ripple effect on basically tending critical infrastructure. Because if not, those types of things will happen. Now, that wouldn't happen with the natural gas. But you get my point to where if some of these pipelines that are 60 or 100 years old are not tended to pretty soon, you could have something happen like that. Maybe not to that degree, but something could happen to where it's at least an Instagram finger-pointing moment. <laughs> I mean, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I, and I think... Uh, Everyone in the industry that is in um, high pressure, high volume pipelines, and even low pressure and low volume, everyone is being very self-reflective right now um, to to understand what we can do to increase our, our best management practices. Um, how do we uh, look at our overall security of the pipeline um, and, and ensure the longevity of it? Uh, because every company has invested heavily in these assets. Um, and, and no company benefits by having a disruption in supply. That, that's never uh, anything a company wants. And so being proactive and taking, uh, taking steps to in, ensure that, that your safety is first and foremost and that you can, one, receive the gas and two, deliver the gas is, is priority number two. Um, and and I, I feel very confident that, that the industry is being proactive there, but I think outwardly from a critical uh, infrastructure standpoint, I don't think the market is quite aware. Um, and, and I don't know if our, our politicians really give the benefit that 
the natural gas infrastructure community really deserves uh, from a macro portfolio perspective. Uh, you know, again, when we look at it from a power and industrial basis standpoint, we, we don't get credit where credit is due. Um, and, I, and I don't think uh, they really consider us uh, as a cohesive part of that critical infrastructure uh, when they when they're discussing it. Um, you know, we're not on the same type of playing field as a as an electric utility. It's just we're we're not there. Um, and and that's that's what my question was earlier. Is that do, do you know why that is that we're not quite there? Because I mean, like I said before, there's so much that's that's powered by natural gas. I mean, the last I saw Tesla, uh, the big you know their their electric cars out in where is it nevada or california their big their big station like 70 to 90 percent of that is powered by natural gas so even the whole renewables uh wave is is the backbone is natural gas i mean absolutely and uh you, you know I, I really i think it is just such a shift in dynamics over the last 10 years that it's still new I mean, and that's that's something that we have to remind ourselves that 10 years is not a lot of time. And to have such a structural shift in the economy and in the market, uh, if, if you have a, a legislator that's been in there for, say, 30 years, well, coal was always king. Nuclear was always king in some states. And so now we've had natural gas um, rise to the top in a very short period of time. And that's a very, it might be a very just small slice in a legislator's uh, period uh, uh, in his professional career. And so I think we've got to continue to promote uh, natural gas infrastructure and the overall role it plays in our economy uh, and in the power portfolio, because I, I just don't see that, that awareness or respect um, in, in, in the regulators that I talk to. It, it's still coal, it's still natural gas, and still focused on the electric utilities. Wesley Kate with Eco Energy here. Just wrapping up our conversation on natural gas, critical infrastructure, pipelines, and even a little ethanol talk thrown in there. <laughs> Why not? Uh, just kind of final thoughts. Anything we missed? Anything you want to reiterate? Anything that uh, you think needs to be mentioned? That sort of thing. I'd like to give guests the final word, the final thought. That way the question isn't framed by me or any sort of context. So the floor is yours, sir. Um, you know, just for, for the listeners, as, as we go forward as an industry, uh, again, we have supply, infrastructure, and demand. But when we continue to talk about our industry, let's all try to shift the narrative away from a supply-based narrative and shift it to a demand-based narrative. So when we talk about our industry, let's talk about what it promotes, what it creates from a tax revenue standpoint, from a manufacturing standpoint. Um, without infrastructure, we don't have the Tyson's Foods. We don't have the GMs. We don't have the Toyotas. We don't have your aluminum plants. And that's really where we need to be promoting our industry um, is in those kind of job creation uh, type of uh, elements because that's what your neighbor is going to uh, going to understand and relate to. And so that, that's really my, my biggest takeaway, my biggest uh, promotional point here uh, is, is really a, a shift in, in how we talk about uh, our, our infrastructure community.